Hello, hello everyone and welcome to the most scientific dev game podcast in the world, House of Games. I'm your co-host, Rune, and today I'm joined by my host, Otto, and a very special guest, Tobias, from Pieces Interactive. But before we piece you together, Mr. Tobias, let us grab our flashlights and head inside this week's episode of House of Games. Welcome everyone to the House of Games and especially welcome to our guest Tobias. So first of all, would you like to introduce yourself and uh, tell us uh, who you are? Yeah, of course. So as <laughs> the host have said, my name is uh, Tobias and I work at Pieces Interactive in Skövde in Sweden. And I actually, I have many positions at once basically. I'm a game researcher and a game developer and I'm currently working as a process coordinator at Pieces Interactive. So I'm developing the process for their next project and not alone in the dark as they are working on currently. Interesting. And to tie into our last episode was with the Research Institute of Sweden. So I would like to start at that end. So. Could you tell us more about game research? What do you research? And just give us a general overview of the process and what it is about. Yeah, that's really interesting. Actually, I started a PhD project a couple of years ago, and I wanted to look into game development in general. Since I have a background in game development, I've been working as a lead artist and level designer as well. So. I wanted to sort of look into the processes of game development, but my supervisors at the time said like, no, you have five years, you can't dig into every aspect of game development during that time. People have tried to do it for 20 years. So I narrowed it down. So I'm actually looking at level design specifically because I find it super interesting with level designs because it's sort of like a cross section of game development where you develop basically everything that you need to create a game, but it's just a portion of it. It's a level. I could have the cake in it too. I didn't have to look into everything, but I sort of got to look at everything. So I'm looking at, yeah, every aspect of level design basically. And currently I'm looking at the process aspect of it. Who are involved? What does it take? How do you need to set up your organization to make it work and stuff like that? which goes hand in hand with my previous role at Pieces Interactive, which was a design lead or design coordinator, where I led the level design team, basically. A lot of interesting things there. And if it's everything about the level design, so is there a difference in the history of level design? So for example, from the beginning of video games until now, is there what someone would call different eras or does oh, yeah. things change or? What does the research say about that? Yeah, uh, that's uh, I actually that was my first step when I started researching level design. I wanted to sort of define it, and I looked at it's kind of sparsely researched. So I mainly look at uh, articles from the industry and uh, presentations from game companies and stuff like that to sort of get the industry perspective rather than the research perspective when defining level design. But what I first found was I did a, an article defining it, as I said, and I looked at job listings from all over the world and sort of how they defined it. And during this, I also went to Japan and uh, did a research paper with Games, And they got me in contact with the CEO of Konami and the Square Enix level design guy. 
And what I found was many of them were like, yeah, level design is not really something many Japanese company do. And especially they did not do it back in the days, even though they had levels, they didn't have a level designer. And some of the older people or the more senior people were even like, what do you mean when you say level design? Are you talking about difficulty level? And I was like, no, no, <laughs> it's not the same thing. So it actually turned out like since, uh, well, you probably know this room, the Japanese game industry comes from manufacturing and then into arcade games. So they had this really strict hierarchy with a director in the top and they had planners below that. And then they had designers, which are artists and programmers. So they didn't really have the role of level designer, which was really interesting. And they told me, like, we're starting to get more into the Western way of having the more flat hierarchy mm. now. And for instance, for creating Breath of the Wild, they had to adapt this more flat hierarchy because it's open world. Wow. So they can't have this segmented hierarchy anymore. So that's super interesting. And uh. it used to be like that. Uh, and levels are also sort of a vague term. I mean, newer games usually go by chapters or acts or stuff like that. And the first games went by stages or worlds. So, so yeah, level is vague. And if you look at huge open world games like the GTA franchise, their levels are basically the districts or separate areas of mm. an entire level, which is the huge world mm. they have. So yeah, it's, uh, it has changed. As games grow, you need to create more content. Levels become more vague. <laughs> so it's interesting mm. and it's super difficult. I love the fact that you brought up the Zelda as an example. I think I said it maybe twice already on this show and I talked to my friend today who works as a musician and they have this hierarchy within that company too and his senpai, so the guy who's above him, he's one year older, been there one year oh, longer yeah. than him. And because my friend is Swedish, I mean, we both adapted quite well to the Japanese culture and all that, but I think we still have a little bit of that anti-hierarchy yeah. thing in us. And we, I told him, like, just as, because now he's been working for this company very long and he's doing very well. And I'm like, please don't fall into that hierarchy trap. And then he sort of told me about his senpai who is, I mean, he should respond to his senpai, but now the boss is sort of liking my friend. Oh. <laughs> and I think it's because my friend then have that sort of, so the, his senpai play by the book. So he sort of do what yeah. he had to do or he follow the rules. And I sort of feel sorry for that guy because that's how he's grown yeah. up in this uh, sort of hierarchy culture. But then my Swedish friend just go step in and sort of get more uh, positive feedback and is becoming more like a favorite oh, yeah. because he don't follow that hierarchy thing or he's doing it, but not exactly. So that's quite interesting. And I also told my friend what you just told me, and I'm so happy you brought up Breath of the Wild because I said on this show as well, I read an article around the time that game came out and I believe it said something along these lines like the Nintendo people said like this time around we sort of let the older guys step aside and let the younger people in more yeah. to help designing the game and then you see the sort of success of the game and I always felt like the Zelda games have been very similar and that's another what we talked about yesterday's episode or a week ago I suppose when you hear this I also mentioned that when you have these hierarchies things tend to change slower than it would if you have a more flat hierarchy, if you will. And it's very funny you brought that up because I talked about that on the show as well. And I'm glad to hear that you have 
heard about that or that you found out that too. Yeah, and that was actually the first reason why SciGames, the research department, wanted to do the paper with me because I had to go there to their fancy office and sort of pitch, this is what I do, this is what I look at. And I was it was my first week as a PhD student, so I was kind of scared. And then they had its super fancy office and they began by telling me that this is the biggest game company in Japan if you don't count hardware because then Nintendo is obviously the biggest. But mm. they told me, so this is a big deal. And I was like, okay, <laughs> no pressure. And mm. I had this half-baked idea about like, yeah, we're going to look at the definition of level design. And I talked to them about it and had some questions and they got super excited like, oh yeah, 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 we need to know this. We want mm. to know how you do it in the Western way because we don't do it like that. So yeah. they actually brought up Breath of the Wild. They had tried to get some inspiration or spy. <laughs> no, not spy at them. But they wanted mm -hmm. to get some information from Nintendo. But it's sort of like game development in general is very secretive. So it's tough to get that information, mm. which is also something I find very interesting about research. It's tough to get mm. access, but the good thing about doing research is that my goal is to spread information to different companies so even though companies might not talk to each other that much or as much as they should the researcher's job is to spread information and spread knowledge so i think that is a way to sort of get that information sharing going of course anonymized but yeah <laughs> yeah another cool thing or something i read around the time i heard about this breath of the wild thing was also hideo kojima Metal Gear Solid. Yeah. He also mentioned something that when he started his own company, Kojima Productions, he also wanted to adapt a more Western style where it is less of a hierarchy. I mentioned on the show before, I go to these indie meetups once a month in Tokyo. Yeah. And I hear from some people that companies that still have that old school hierarchy, it's almost literally like in a building, let's say, 10th floor is the boss and ninth floor are oh, yeah, yeah. the way you sort of describe it how it goes down like that and it's literally like that even in a building we're up and down the elevators but you know it's Tokyo so everything is tight and built on the height yeah exactly so, yeah and I also wonder because you are working with level design that's my favorite part of making games yeah. as well so I don't know for how long did you stay in Japan uh, I was just there for uh, I think a bit more than a week I had some business meetings and research meetings when I was there Okay, because here's something that I've noticed living here, which I think is quite fascinating. They have fences everywhere in Japan. Like each house, even though it's like, let's say two foot between two houses, they still have a wall, like a yeah. fence or a brick wall between the houses. Yeah. And if you look at Metal Gear Solid, the games, the way they're designed feels so framed in Ruta. Yeah. I'm not sure how you... And it's just like... I noticed this when I played these games back in the day and also with the camera angles. And I actually... Something I read when I was younger that Hideo Kojima, he would use Lego when he built the oh, yeah, levels. that's cool. But when I see these games, especially Metal Gear Solid 1 and 2 in particular, it feels so Japanese with the fences and everything and sort of frame everything in where you can go and cannot go. But when you live in Japan, you realize that's how it is yeah. here because it's so tight, everything. And if I, for example, look at Google Map and I want to go, I don't know, to the other side of the street uh, behind some buildings, if it was Sweden, I would assume that I can just walk between some buildings and get there, sort of shortcut my way through. But here at this point, I know there will be a fence 
even though I don't see it, I know behind that wall there's going to be some fence which I can't get across. So I would have to follow the rules and follow the street to get there, even though it would be way quicker if I could just walk diagonally over there. One more thing about Persona. I haven't played Persona the last one, but I could imagine that if you're a Westerner playing that and you have all these walls all these fences and stuff like that i can imagine that you as a player think well the developers just put these fences here because they don't want you to be able to go there but it's just so japanese to have those fences and where you can and cannot walk i just think it's interesting how that sort of design enters the game yeah and that's funny when you say that they ask you how it works in the west because it would be a totally different thing for them. Oh, yes. And that becomes a localization issue with what you recognize. I mean, that could go the other way around as well. If we create a game based on our architecture and our cultural heritage in uh, Sweden or the Scandinavian countries, that might be oddly perceived by someone who has not lived here in the same way. And Mm. it sort of goes into affordances as well if we look at the old 70 Gibson concept of affordances where interaction is the first thing you see you see it before the object so if you see a ladder for instance placed up on a wall your brain will automatically think like oh I can climb here before they think oh Mm -hmm. it's a ladder and many of those things are sort of general and intercultural like a ladder it's in every culture so people Mm -hmm. know how ladders work but if we start bringing those affordances towards more cultural specific stuff that won't really work in other countries and that sort of those fences as you talk about in Japanese games for them it's like yeah it's one of those fences that's logical but for us it might feel like Mm. oh they're just trying to block me as a player this is a game thing which it isn't it's a Mm. logical architecture for them so I love that about level design looking Mm. into these uh, yeah (laughs) be aware of what you create really yeah, one more thing. I actually love the From Software games, for example. They're quite tight. Yeah. Not Elden Ring, but the previous ones. Very tight, and I think they're just so beautiful, and they're so tight and crisp, oh, yeah. and it's like details everywhere. I think it's absolutely wonderful and beautiful. A lot of Japanese games, I feel, are like that. And I like to compare that with, for example, a Western game like World of Warcraft. Oh, yeah. And it's also about the camera it's so zoomed out and obviously it's a MMO but it's so wide streets are wide the sidewalk everything is so wide in these games while in Japanese game everything is so tight and I also wonder if that's a cultural thing and I really prefer the the tight stuff because it's yeah I don't know it looks like more alive I would just guess here but partly yeah that sounds like it could be connected to the culture of architecture and stuff like that but also I know from reading up on Japanese game development that this sort of stemming from this more hierarchical structure, they manage to have much smaller teams because they work so effectively since they have a set goal, you need to create just this thing and then you're done. Whereas in Western Mm -hmm. game development, we have this horizontal discussion and we change things as we go along and it takes a bunch more time and a bunch more people, but then we can create larger stuff. So... I think to maintain that sort of smaller company and fast structure, they also try to build things smaller and just put in what is necessary and not all the stuff around, basically, Mm. which might also affect, this is, as I said, just me guessing, but that might also affect the size of the final product. But as you say, it's small, but it has the charm. It has everything it needs because they've been doing this for a long time. They know how to do it. Mm. 
One thing I was just curious about that you said a little while back was that everything is usually very secretive with game companies. Yeah. So that's sort of the opposite of the experience I have. So I'm curious if that's maybe something that's inherent to bigger companies or if it's just a Japanese thing or what's your experience with that? My experience is that it's not... Actually, in Japanese companies, the ones I talked to were very open when I got to talk to them. So the secret part is rather, as a researcher, I know many other researchers have encountered this as well. You talk to a company like, can I come observe what you do? Can I come and just ask some questions? That is usually very hard to get that access because then you're like, oh, what are you going to look at? We have secret stuff going on. Can you sign an NDA? We don't want to let any information out, basically. So the wall is up directly. My benefit was that I've been working as a game developer, so I know game developers, so I could get in on a more personal basis and then do my research. But the secrets are usually, I would say, yeah, larger companies, and especially when it comes to unannounced projects and stuff like that that sort of seeps into uh, processes and organization as well. And mainly in the US and the North America, because it's so strict what you can say and what you cannot say. So they don't want to accidentally spoil anything. So even if they were to talk about their process and not their project, they are scared that if we say too much about the process, people can probably figure out what kind of project we're working on. So that's where the secrets are. Otherwise, it's a very open industry once you're in it and once you're <laughs> talking to people. Well, I was going to go back a little bit to level design. When you research stuff, what are you looking for? Are you looking at the levels? Do you want them to be designed so they are fun or convenient or just beautiful? So what exactly do you look for when you look at all these level designs? Ah, yeah, that's a good question. For my research, I am looking at the process and more organizational management level and how to produce levels. What does it take? I'm not really looking into the quality aspect, at least not yet in my research, but as a manager and also I worked as a teacher and I'm still sort of working as a teacher at the university within level design. Then, of course, I'm looking at the quality aspects. And the way I do that is just as you say, I analyze the hell out of levels that I think are good, that people think are good. And I sort of break it down into every little facet of the level and see like, okay, mm. what is it that makes this work? And on top of that, and I would say for my research as well, I read everything I can come across from experienced level designer talking about their craft, partly because it's super interesting, but also it's, I love level design. So it's, <laughs> that's mm. interesting. But one thing I've realized when the more I look into how level designers talk about their own work is that everyone works in a different way. And level design just between different companies looks completely different. I know that two of the companies I actually did field studies at, one of them had the artists create the first draft of the level. So that it was a beautiful level from the get-go because artists created it, but it was super hard to get gameplay in there and make gameplay work. Whereas the other company had the game designers or the level designers create a white box and create the gameplay. So the gameplay was fun. And then the artist came in. This is the general way to do it. But then the artists came in and mm. set dressed it. But then they had the issue that no one really thought about composition and the sort of 
in-between stuff. So there were a bunch of boxes and then the artists made the boxes look good. But we didn't have the beautiful vistas and stuff like that because that disappeared in the process. So I think that it's so interesting to see how different level designers work with levels. And everything seems to work out in the end. <laughs> for better or worse. Yeah, I'm also curious, just from your personal point of view, what do you like the, the design in terms of what you see or the, the funniness or what do you think is the most important? Because I assume it's different if you're a researcher for a company or if you are a company, you want to have the, the levels that are just best yeah. in every yeah. way to make sure it's fun for the player and they keep playing. But from a personal point of view, what do you think would be most important because for example you could have a really beautiful looking level but it's very boring exactly would you prefer that over yeah from a personal perspective i would always prefer fun over beautiful even though i come from an artist background and i love a beautiful level mm. so don't get me wrong there but games are made to be fun and to be enjoyed beautiful but boring level is something you will look at and then like okay i'm gonna turn this game off now whereas even if the level is sort of not that beautiful, but is super fun, then you will continue playing because you're having a good time. So I would say that gameplay mm. will always come first in my heart, but the mm. best is when you can combine them. And one thing that I think many people forget, as I said this with the composition and stuff like that, is that art should be there to sort of enhance the game experience. I know many people, especially people creating realistic looking games, they are so focused on that everything should be realistic, but they forget like the readability for the player, because if everything is realistic, everything will blend together and you won't see the important stuff like the landmarks, the puzzles and stuff like that. Mm. So you need to create interesting art that the player reads easily so they will understand what they need to do in the game. And that is especially mm important when you create a level i would say to guide the player with the art and the level design as well of course but yeah gameplay first yeah talking about realism one of my personal rules is that i don't want floating stuff in my <laughs> games i want there to be a reason why they float for example in knife boy there would be like cogs everywhere so if there there's no floating boxes yeah. there is a reason why it's there i don't like when they just float in me there for no reason and i don't know why that is but that's one of my rules yeah, but yeah, I, I totally agree actually when I, I played minecraft a bunch i love to build stuff there as well and i sort of have this pet peeve when a box in minecraft is left floating uh. in the air i it's it hurts me inside, even though like the mechanics of that game allows a box to be floating. But yeah, I agree with you. It's horrible. I remove it directly. Like, no, uh -huh. it shouldn't be floating. That's <laughs> unrealistic. <laughs> on that topic, from your research, is there any patterns you could see where you could say that like this is the definite guide on how to make good level design or these are the mistakes to avoid or this is what people usually do that makes successful levels for example mm. yeah it's tricky i have some indications in the more general sense where one thing that many game companies forget about when creating levels is the narrative a narrative in games in general is something that since it's 
pretty new. I wouldn't say that it's new, but the large focus on narrative is new. It's something that is usually set aside, like we can write the narrative later and we can fill in the blanks. It's not that important when we want to create a fun game. And I've even heard a bunch of developers and a bunch of companies saying like, we don't have any narrative in our game, which is, I'm sorry for the harsh word, but that's bullshit. I mean, every game has a narrative, whether you want it or not. You might not have explicit narrative like dialogue and text coming up telling you what is going on, but you have a game world, you have rules in that world, you have things that cannot happen like if you're creating a fantasy game should it have magic should it have some sort of mechanic like cogwheels and stuff like you were talking about have they invented an engine stuff like that that's part of the narrative what can go on in my world and if you decide to create that too late in the process after you started creating levels you will need to redo so much things so it's super important that you have some sort of narrative set out before you start creating levels because otherwise the levels will suffer mm. from it. Even narrative like what should the player feel in this level? Should they start off scared and then they move forward and feel like a hero? Then maybe it should be sort of moving from the darkness into the light, maybe moving up a hill. Whereas if it should be the other way around, at the end of this level they should feel devastated. Yeah, have them move downwards further and further like the metaphorical hitting rock bottom stuff that allows you to create a much more vibrant and well thought out level. So not forgetting about narrative is one key point that I have. <laughs> and other than that, just test it all the time, whether you're an artist creating a level or a designer, that is also something that is usually forgotten. You test it in the beginning and it's fun. And then you start adding these things and feel like, oh, it's becoming cooler and you forget to test it. And turns out you broke half the level and it might not even be playable or understandable. So there are some of these general rules that I've started to carve out, but it's difficult since everyone is doing it differently and so many disciplines are involved. It's hard to keep track yeah, of everything. And I'm curious, Odo, how do you and your brother, I mean, what you said about walking down a pit to feel shit. I never yeah, same would have here. thought about that. Do you guys, do you think like that at all? Well, stuff. our game that we are creating, we haven't really gotten to the level design just yet. We're just on the threshold on, on starting level design. Ah. But I would say that the way that we think about it is because it's going to be sort of a mini open world. So I think the approach from Grand Theft Auto mm, is yeah. the closest I can compare it to so more like a neighborhood rather than a set level where there's a set start and finish i guess so i think yeah. that's sort of where we something that i really like in level design to draw a parallel is for example the harry potter games on pc so there you usually had at least in the first two games i think you had things you had to do in different parts of the castle and there was no map. So you had to get a sense and remember the location and the castle and how do I get there and which hallway do I go to get here. Mm. And that's something that I really, really like in games. In the beginning, you can't find your way at all almost, but at the end of it, you know exactly where everything is and it feels sort of like mm. home, like your neighborhood. Yeah, I also like that. 
that's one of the most difficult points i would say to no the most difficult point is to create fun because fun is such an abstract <laughs> word but one very difficult point that is very special to level design is to create that experience as you're describing because to do that to be able to deliver that to the player where the player starts to feel more at home and starts to learn everything you really need to be careful about how you design things because if you want that without the map and stuff you don't want things to look too similar for instance you want to have hero pieces like oh that's the yeah. fountain now i know where i am i remember that fountain so you need all that stuff and you also need to think about more psychological aspects i know the resident evil games you do this pretty well where they never have more than one door on the same wall or if they do one of the doors is usually locked with a special ah. key or something so you remember that door but it's a old trick like if you only have one door to the west on this wall then you will remember that door better than if you had three doors on that wall because then you will mix them up you really need to think about your layout if you want to achieve that thing and I know that Metroid Dread, I was super impressed when I played that when it came out two years ago, I think now, because then I really got that feeling. And not even did I get the feeling like I understand the level now. I could just run like the wind through the entire map and I felt like a genius because I found my way. And after a while I realized like, no, it's not really that I find my way that good. It's that the level design is that good. It's funneling me without me knowing that I'm being funneled. It's tricky, but it's cool when mm. you can pull it off. Something that I think, I guess you can be the judge of that, but I think is connected to level design is also that you design a level based on how you're able to navigate through it. So for example, depending on if you as a character only can go on foot or if you have a car or how fast you can travel, you want to design it differently. So an example of a, yeah. a sort of, it's so bad, it's good game, but uh, the level <laughs> design is definitely just bad in my opinion, is the Deadly Premonition <laughs> series. So the first game especially, or I would say both of them. So the first game you had a big open world, but the only way you can go without taking an hour to get from A to B is taking a car. And usually you have a police car because you're a detective in the game. And to make it go faster, you have yeah. to have the sirens on <laughs> all the time. So you just listen to this <laughs> like one second loop of a police siren to go everywhere which is kind of insane. And then the second game is actually somehow worse because then the character's <laughs> car broke down so he doesn't have a car, but it's a bigger world. And instead you either go on foot or skateboard. I don't know if that was an afterthought that they realized, oh shit, we can't make cars in time or something, but yeah. <laughs> No, but that's super interesting. And I, I've seen this as well in games. And I know the first Borderlands game got some critique for this. They fixed it later on, but your car could break kind of easily. And they had built large areas of the map where they were built for driving in a car. And if the car broke when you were in the middle of nowhere, yeah, too bad you had to run. <laughs> and it wasn't a fun level to run in. I know they fixed it for Borderlands 2 to some extent. But as a level designer, of course, that is a central part. Like how fast are you going to move? How, can you move in different speeds that complicate things? You need to think about all of that. And I would say even more centrally to the role of level designer is that it's the level designer's job to make mechanics fun. Because 
if a game designer says like, yeah, we're going to have a double jump in this game, a double jump in itself isn't fun. It's not fun to stand on flat ground and jump twice. That yeah. sucks. It's just <laughs> jumping twice. So what makes the double jump fun is how the level experiments with it and plays with it like you need to jump across an obstacle and like i know the Mega Man x series had the double jump where you needed to fall down a bit before you jumped midair to jump under something and that is just playing with the same mechanic and you create all of these fun variants of using your different mechanics and that is usually up to the level designer to figure these things out and that is super fun. I've seen some games fail on this, where they add a mechanic that might be super cool, but level design never really does anything with it. So you just have a mechanic that sucks. Mm. <laughs> and that is too bad. And it generally boils down to communication. You need to communicate with all your team. So everyone is like, okay, we have this mechanic. What do we do with it? Should we keep it? Can we come up with cool ideas and yeah. stuff like that? Yeah, really interesting. And it's something that you don't think about because everyone is so different and people play your game totally different than you expect them to. So I think also the psychological aspect of level design must make it really hard because there's like a million ways to make it and then every one of those levels are going to be interpreted in a million different ways. Yep. Mm. That's a huge issue. And working on the Alone in the Dark game now, I can't say too much about it because it's not released yet. But in general, just when working with levels and stuff like that, I've never worked that much with horror before this game. I've dabbled with it. But going into the whole horror aspect and trying to replicate that, that is super difficult. And it goes into what you just said like everyone will play this differently even if you place the coolest event ever and it's super scary people might turn 180 degrees and miss all of it then they just hear a weird sound they do yeah. not understand what happened but still you don't want to force the player either you could take the camera and make it into a super short cutscene, but then that takes away some of the immersion and then it doesn't feel like you're playing the game and then you also take some of the scariness away so that is a super difficult balance. And I wouldn't say there's like a secret recipe to make it work. It's just about trying it out and finding soft ways to force the player. Maybe use a bunch of lighting and some movement, maybe place a pickup where you want the player to look. So you try to guarantee them they will look at the super cool thing you created. Yeah. Attention, as you say, is something that I think is difficult to get right because I notice even when I play, it happens that you're looking at the wrong thing or you miss something in the puzzle or something. A really, really good example of getting it right is actually the Lego games. So there yeah. you have pickups and money that spawns everywhere, basically. And they are really good at making stuff that you want to break or stuff that you want to pick up where you're supposed to go without making it seem that you're being led there. It feels a lot like you as a player discovered that thing and then you just happen upon something that proceeds the level. I totally agree. And I, I played a few of the Lego games and I had the same experience. One of my favorite games when it comes to leading the player or allowing the player to adventure 
Breath of the Wild once again, which is one of the few open world games I know who had actually pulled this off. I remember when playing it, it had been super hyped. I was kind of late on the Breath of the Wild train and it hyped it a lot. And that sort of raised my expectations. And I felt like, yeah, it's going to suck because my expectations are too high. But it didn't suck. It's a great game. And I remember the feeling like I just saw this cool mountain and then I was like, oh, I'm going to climb this mountain. It's not part of any quest. It's not anything. I'm just going to climb the mountain. And if you do that in, let's say, Skyrim, if you climb a random mountain, then chances are you will be on top of a mountain and that's mm. it. <laughs> Whereas in Breath of the Wild, generally when you climb a cool place, you will find something. You will find a small puzzle. You will find something fun. You will find a seed or whatever it is you're looking for. So that is something that I found to be super well made from them. They made places look interesting, so you just went mm. there because it felt like an adventure and it felt like you had the freedom to go there. And I remember them doing similar things in the best game of all time, in my opinion, The Legend of Zelda Link to the Past to Super Nintendo, mm. where... As a kid, when I played it, I felt like, oh, I can go wherever I want. I have total freedom. It's the first open world game in my eyes. But as I got older and realized, like, no, no, I'm super funneled. I have to do everything in a certain order, basically. But they gave this illusion of freedom and meanwhile guiding me perfectly. And that is very well made level design just to achieve that, I think. When you play games, how broken do you feel in your brain from working with level design <laughs> can you enjoy uh, games or are you just sitting there like ah they did that trick i see <laughs> <laughs> i would say 50 50 when i was developing every day when i worked with level design myself full-time all day i was kind of broken and it was also new to me so i sort of tried to look at everything that had to do with level design and i couldn't really enjoy the experience of the game as i've been doing this for a while i've also learned to turn that part of my brain off when i feel like i don't need it so last year i played god of war ragnarok and then i managed to turn that part off and just enjoy the game but yeah of course i can't turn it off completely so in some cases i was like ah this was sort of most often it was good but sometimes like yeah why did they design it like this they should have done this instead <laughs> mm. interesting you bring up ragnarök we talked about it two episodes ago the oh. puzzles there are quite they hint to early on and that conversation sort of turned into level design do you have any opinions on that sorry Oda, i bring up ragnarök again <laughs> <laughs> no 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 by all means is it a sore point <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I couldn't stop ranting about it <laughs> but I I, no, love but this. I I haven't played the second one but I love the first one but my point was that what's the point having the puzzles in the game if they're gonna tell me what to do as soon as I enter the room yeah 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 no no but I, I actually I have a very special feeling towards that sort of I think it, you can divide it into three sorts of information giving where explicit is where you get the text saying this is how you solve the puzzle or in this case in God of War where they say look at this solve it this way and then you have the implicit which I find most intuitive where they create the level in such a way that you will figure it out it's implicit even though no one says how you will solve it and that's what I like most and I just realized I was thinking about explicit implicit and emergent narrative but yeah it goes the same way for puzzles <laughs> 
Anyway, mm. I have sort of have a pet peeve when they tell you too much how to solve stuff. I think part of it is because when I started playing games back in the 90s, early 90s, you had no lifeline. You had to figure stuff out. I remember finishing both Monkey Island 1 and 2 when I was very young and I didn't know English. And I, for the life of me, can't understand that I actually finished them because mm. today when I play them, I have to Google stuff and I know English now because they're super difficult. But I guess when you were a kid in the 90s as well, when you didn't have that many games, you had the patience. So you just tried everything until it worked. And I sort of miss, I don't want to go back all the way there where you need to figure everything out yourself. But many games today tend to hold your hand too much. Yeah, I totally agree. The From Software games are my favorite for that reason, that they sort of take you back to the 90s and not holding your hand. But yeah, they're very difficult games. And I sort of understand. I've been in the development seat as well, where you have publishers and you might have a goal where you, this should reach as many people as possible, not mm. just gamers, but people who are casual, like play once a month or something. So we need to make it so that everyone can just pick up and play and understand immediately what they should do. And I understand that mm. it's different audiences. But for me, I'm with you. Please let me figure things out myself. And I love the God of War Ragnarok, but that part where they tell you how to solve the puzzle before you even try it, it's like, no, please come on. Then it's not a puzzle. Mm. Then it's someone telling me what to do. I like your example of playing games when you were a kid not understanding what you were doing because I had the same experience with Final Fantasy VII in particular. I remember when they told you where to go, they would highlight, let's say, go to Canyon Northwest and Northwest would be highlighted and then I would have this english swedish book and sort of what does northwest mean and then i maybe went downstairs and asked mom and dad what is northwest i mean in swedish <laughs> i didn't even know that and then like, up and left oh, okay. <laughs> up and left and then i figured out where to go yeah but that's super fun and i learned so much english and so much language stuff from playing games because that's what made me want to learn and i remember mm. i don't know how old i was 12 or something when the first god of war games came out the playstation one games i remember we just started learning about greek mythology in school and i was like eh, why should i know this it sucks <laughs> it's old and i'm a kid but then i started playing god of war and i was like holy shit this is super interesting and i paid so much attention during a greek mythology class after that and i aced every mm. test because games made me appreciate the subject so I think games can have that sort of magic, like mm. help, even if they don't help you learn directly, which they do sometimes, they indirectly, they definitely can make you interested in learning stuff. I have a story about the game I want to make after the one I'm working on now, which is mm. like a JRPG. Yeah. So I was living in America <laughs> when I was 19. So my English was shit back then. And I thought like, I'm going to write a movie in English to learn English <laughs> yeah. so I did that and then later on I used that script sort of thinking well what if I'm turn this into a game mm-hmm. if this were to become a game one day so I already had the storyline and then I visualized the world like a Final Fantasy 7, 8, 9 world map you know Ooh, when you yeah. had the world map in those games so that's how I designed my own world map yeah. And in the story, it says that the main character go to the capital. It's like a fantasy game, obviously, yeah. JRPG. So he yeah. goes to the capital, and then I was like, so the capital should be here. It's not necessarily the level design, but it's world map level design. It was sort of designed from that kind of 
angle which i i don't know if that's normal or not but uh, no, that's that's very cool i i don't know either actually but starting with a map is general practice when you do paper designs and stuff like that which you generally do in the beginning but mm. having the story so well thought out as i said many people miss it many developers miss it so i think that's a really good thing that you have described the game world and you know what kind of world it is you're creating that's gonna make for a better level in the end or better levels that sounds super cool speaking of level design in games like final fantasy 789 these games are not necessarily fun to play and the game I'm working on now, it's like a imagine Harvest Moon, Stardew oh, yeah. Valley cool. game. That's not very nice. Love those games, but they're not fun to play. You know, you can't jump or anything like that. So if we talk about, for example, Final Fantasy, wouldn't that be an example where the design it should look pretty? It doesn't have to be fun. Speaking as a Stardew Valley fan huge fan no i mean the movement in itself like just running around which is what you do when you run across the level isn't fun in itself but then you need to the level design of course it's a benefit if it looks pretty because you will move around a bunch in it but then it's more the ones where you need to guide the player since it's not that fun to move across the map you don't want the player to get lost so it's super important that the map is readable and that it's understandable and then you might also want to think about backtracking because since it's not that fun to move one way maybe you don't want the player to have to move back the exact same way maybe they can take a different path and then you need to think about alternative routes and stuff like that to make the most of the little movement you have and i think they do it mm. great in stardew valley for instance and even in the old final fantasy games final fantasy games mainly fix it with having a bunch of story stuff in between and interesting characters and stuff like that but in stardew valley you can move different ways and you also have reason to move a different way away from your farm and back to your farm because you might run straight into town to buy some seeds and then you realize oh and i need a fish as well so i'm gonna run down to the ocean and catch some fish and then i come in mm -hmm. from to my house from below and then i can chop some trees so you sort of have that you place interesting things all over so yeah the movement in itself mm. not that fun but then you need to have interesting things across the map yeah i have some shortcuts you can take but in order to take those shortcuts you need to fix them for example a staircase or a bridge and stuff like that yeah but that's super fun yeah. sorry Ori, you were gonna ask something before i rudely interrupted yeah you. no worries <laughs> this is such an interesting topic like with many episodes you could just talk forever about it it feels like <laughs> mm. but one thing i was gonna say about making the f world feel really big and making you want to explore it is something a uh, feeling that i've only had like once or twice with a game so in the game yeah. guild wars after mm, you yeah. complete the tutorial section this is guild wars one prophecies and then after you complete it you sort of started to spoil like 15 year old game but <laughs> basically you have the map and everything is beautiful and nice and then an event happened and everything goes to shit and it's ruined and you think all right so i'll just keep playing this like depressing part of the game now but then yeah. i didn't realize when i first played it that on the world map if you click you zoom out of the map so i just thought <laughs> that the game was one part was the happy place and the other one was the depressing place and that was yeah. rather big map even for that time but then i zoomed out and i was like holy shit <laughs> this is like 
30 times bigger than I thought the map was. Yeah, yeah. So that just made me so intrigued to continue playing. There was just so much to explore. Oh, I was yeah. satisfied with the area that they have given me. So that's also a good trick, I suppose, that you can reveal later how big the map actually is. Oh yeah, and I love when games do that. And as you say, it's a, I, I haven't experienced it that much either, but I remember the first Red Dead Redemption when I understood like, oh, you can go down to the Mexico part as well, and it's huge. Oh, that's mm. so cool, and I got to explore that as well. And I also love the sort of aspect that you were talking about, like the shortcuts that you unlock by fixing stuff. Mm. I love that aspect of games as well, not just unlocking shortcuts, but knowing that there's an area ahead mm. that you can't get to yet, but you need something to get there. And the reward you feel when you finally like the old Metroidvania games does mm. this. Now you have this tool, so now you can go here. And it might be seen as a cheap trick, but it really works and it really gets the dopamine rush that mm. you want from a game. Like now I can explore this super cool area that I've seen, which is generally a good idea with level design as well to show player beforehand what it is they will get. Or for instance, it's so much more fun to get a new weapon if you have seen that weapon before. I know Resident Evil 2, I think it was, did this very well with many of the weapons. Like you could see in a weapon cabinet that, oh, there's a grenade launcher in there. That's super mm. cool. I want that grenade launcher, but you couldn't get it. So then you get this mission. You don't get an explicit quest like you need to get the key card for the weapon box. But you as a player will feel that quest in yourself. Like, I want to get this card mm. for the weapon box so I can get the weapon. And that is a really cool trick for level design, I think, to sort of show things beforehand. Like, look at this cool thing. You can't have it. And then you will get your intrinsic mission or intrinsic quest. Yeah. And the same goes for what you said earlier about climbing mountains as well. So that's yeah. also something that usually happens for me in open world games that you see a tall building or something to that effect and you just want to get up there just to sort of conquer that part exactly and one thing i don't like about that aspect is when you have that super cool mountain or building or whatever it is because i instantly <laughs> feel like i need to get up there because it's tall and cool and when i get up there yeah there's nothing i'm just on top of a giant building i wouldn't care if it's just an ammo pack mm. or something rubbish as long as there's some sort of pickup so i yeah. feel like oh mm. i got here and i got this super cool thing and i remember playing the first horizon game horizon zero dawn great game but it's so much exploration and i don't know if it was a matter of lack of time from the company or if they just didn't focus on that part but i remember seeing a waterfall somewhere in the game and i realized like i need to get behind mm -hmm. that waterfall because we know that there are treasures behind waterfalls so you actually could it was a bit finicky but you could climb up a hill next mm -hmm. to it and sort of slide down and get in behind the waterfall and they had created a cave there which was super cool and i felt like a genius mm -hmm. for figuring this thing out and they had a small box that you could loot and i got some mm -hmm. sticks and i was like what the fuck i spent <laughs> half an hour getting in here and i got some sticks i could pick that up from the ground wherever and i i remember encountering similar things in that game at other places where i climbed that mm. high hill and like oh more sticks great yeah. so just put out some loot or something or lore for that matter find a note with some interesting information so you as mm. a player can feel that you achieved something i got this information that not everyone got 
I noticed in the Uncharted games, so you make your way into this cave or tomb, and then the bad yeah. guys just blow up a wall and walks in, and I always feel so sorry <laughs> for Drake. Like, God damn it. <laughs> yeah. He had such a kick yeah. finding out how to get in here, and then the bad guys just smash through a wall. Yeah. So. Yeah. That is one of the pet peeves of those games, because I love the Uncharted series. Mm. It's great games. But every time where you spend two hours and you don't see a single enemy and you just go deeper and deeper into the secret cave and you solve these puzzles that hasn't been touched for a thousand years and you're in the central chamber mm. and somehow there's 30 enemies in there and you're like... <laughs> Were they camping in here? Mm. What, 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 how did they? How did they get in? Uh, and that sort of breaks the immersion for me sometimes. Like this just sucks. I mean, I spent a lot of time, and they were already here. Yeah, yeah. I have in my game not to pitch it or talk about that all the time, but in this I'm working on now, there's different classes. You can be homeless or a normal guy or become rich. Mm. So there's this jazz club which you can't enter unless you're rich. And I hope that people will get that what did you say dopamine or something i hope people can get that kick from you can't get in here and then it's sort of like i have to become one of the elite to get in and then obviously now that you talked about it i need to have like a nice reward when you get into these places as well i have some ideas yeah i really want those rewards to be really good as well because i agree with you it's not that fun if it's just like something you can get anywhere exactly and i think the uniqueness of the reward is a reward in itself and one easy way i know that many games use to not have to create an entirely new feature or weapon or stuff like that every time you find something cool is either as i said some sort of lore just find a note mm. with information on it that you can't find anywhere else or many games of course use collectibles for that mm. and collectibles is just like yeah cool i got this statuette and now i can look at it and i feel like i found something that no one else got as you say, the boring thing is when you find something that you could find wherever mm. you went. And that's another thing about Final Fantasy was a crisis core when it originally came to PlayStation Portable. I believe that if, if memory serves that you could, let's say you use your fire magic over and over again and then it levels up to Fira and then Firaga and so on. Mm. But you could just go and buy the Fira or Firaga later on. So that was kind of weird. I felt like that took away some of the I can't remember if it was Crisis Core, but I'm sure it was in one of the Final Fantasy games. And I thought that was a bit weird. It's sort of the same thing when you think you have found something cool and something that not everyone have found. And the reward is just like a normal weapon that you could have bought from the merchant or whatever. Yeah, the only time where I would say that that works is if it was like insanely expensive to buy because then you would feel like oh yeah, I tricked the system. I got it for free. But otherwise that's just... get so close to the sort of pay to win thing even though it's not your own money you're paying it's the game money but still it's the pay to win thing isn't that exciting mm. it's a reason games remove it usually as i said previously i think we could probably talk for five hours and have stuff <laughs> left but unfortunately our time is starting to run out but before we end the episode, Tobias, is there anything you want to plug or promote or anything you want to say before we close the episode? Mm, that's a good question. Alone in the Dark is being worked on. I'm not in that project anymore since I'm working with the research stuff at Pieces. But of course, everyone should play that when it comes out. And I can't say exactly when it comes out because that's confidential. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's fun and it's a... 
real reimagining of the old 90s game, 1992, 93, 94, the originals of Alone in the Dark. So everything good from that and in the new mm. costume, basically. So I can't wait. What horror fans expect. Will you be consulting on the level design at least? Uh, no, I have been. <laughs> when I was a design coordinator, I was consulting on the level design to some extent, but it's not really that management structure all the time there. So no, I probably won't be consulting more, but they have a great design team and a great design lead that will handle that perfectly without me. <laughs> so I have full confidence. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about level design. We'd love to yes. have you back on another episode to continue the discussion. Yeah, and I'd love to come back. And I'm leaving for Game Developers Conference in San Francisco in two weeks. And then I'm going to Montreal to study some game companies there as well. I'm going to Eidos mm. Montreal to see what they're up to. After that, I might have even more information. So, <laughs> Great. Yeah, we'd love to have you back then and, yeah. and talk about your experiences. That would yeah. be amazing. Cool. So thank you everyone for listening. Thank you Rune for being my co-host as always. And thank you Tobias for being our guest for the episode.